Thank you, Chris. Good morning. My name is Joe, and I'm one of the deacons here at Church of the Valley, and we're thankful that you're worshiping here with us this morning. Now, before we examine our text, I'd like to reference a book that I read in preparation for this sermon. It was called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I could quote it at length this morning as Bonhoeffer writes about this topic with greater conviction than I ever could. Now, Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian from the early 20th century, also wrote the Christian classic, The Cost of Discipleship, about what it means to follow Jesus. He would go on to be arrested, imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp, and eventually executed because he believed this message, that it was his responsibility as a Christian, as someone that Christ prayed for, to faithfully shepherd the church amidst the culture in which he lived. In writing Life Together, Bonhoeffer answers the questions, what should the church look like in Nazi Germany? How should German Christians be in the world that includes a Hitler and the Third Reich? Now, there's so much written here about Life Together as the church that I would highly recommend that you check it out for yourself. I'd like to read it for you all for you this morning, except there's a Chiefs game this afternoon. Thank you. Regardless of any specific historical circumstances that we find ourselves in, our calling as the church remains the same. And we will examine that calling this morning in our text. Before we begin, I'd like to pray again for our time this morning in the Word. Our Father, I pray that your word would be preached clearly this morning, that our hearts and minds would be open to your grace and truth, that we would experience the love that you have for your church. Let your word convict where necessary and encourage us all to love God and love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'd like to read the passage one more time, and I'd like to read it in the context that it was written, which is a prayer that Jesus is offering to God as his disciples listened. It says, Jesus prays, they are not of the world, speaking of his disciples, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Part one, we are set apart. We pick up this morning where John Kang left us last week in verse 16. We are still in what we call the high priestly prayer. Jesus has just prayed for his disciples in anticipation of his death, resurrection, and subsequent physical absence affirming their faith and praying that God the Father would sustain them through the trials to come. At the start of our passage this morning, Jesus is still praying for his disciples when he says, they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. And if we skip to verse 18, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The disciples are not of this world, yet Jesus is sending them into it. Now, how are they to live in the world if they are not of the world? The answer is found in verses 17 and 19. Verse 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And in verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays that the disciples would be sanctified. Now, what does that mean? To be sanctified is to be set apart, specifically set apart for an intended purpose, to be set apart for God's use. Jesus is saying, in the same way that I am being sanctified or consecrated, being set apart for the work that the Father has called me to, which is to lay down his life for the sins of man. You are also being sanctified or set apart for the work that the Father calls you to. You see, the disciples are sent into the world with a very specific purpose. They are not meant to live in the world as others do, without any real significance or meaning. So what is their purpose? The disciples' intended purpose is to go out into the world making more disciples of Christ. The truth that Jesus refers to here is found earlier in his prayer in verse 3. We read, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Everything God does is meant to restore our relationship with him, and he does that through the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus' work on the cross is accomplished and he ascends to the right hand of the Father, this same truth sets us apart or sanctifies us to partner in the work of the Holy Spirit, to be disciples making disciples. Now, Jesus first prays for himself then for his immediate disciples, and finally in this passage, for those who will believe. We know that this discourse is for us in this section of the passage we read this morning because Jesus turns his attention to and prays for the future church. When we read the Bible, it is certainly appropriate to first ask of the text, who is God and what is he doing 
followed by, and what does this mean for us now? For much of the Bible, the authors were first writing to a specific audience, and then because of the Holy Spirit, his word is made alive in us as well. But here in this particular text, we read in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. His prayer is specifically for all who would believe. That includes us, those of us who are followers of Jesus. He prays for you and he prays for me even now as we gather here this morning. Now we've already heard two previous sermons about Jesus' intercession. Why do I belabor this point now? Because what Jesus is about to pray on our behalf, we cannot do on our own. And the same Jesus who prayed for his disciples and other great heroes of the faith, people that we admire and often place on impossibly high pedestals, that same Jesus, our advocate and friend, is praying the same thing for you and me right now. And what does Jesus pray for us in this particular passage? Part two, we are set apart to be one. That we would be one. Of all the things Jesus prays for, he prays for unity among the believers. Now why should we be one? This seems to be a question that's often asked. Why can't I just follow Jesus on my own? Do I really need to be a part of a church in order to follow God? Now, Bonhoeffer writes this about unity among the believers. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Christian unity is a reality. It is not some lofty goal to which we must aspire. If we are in Christ, then we are also in the church. We see this reality in verse 21. It says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That's a lot of pronouns, but it will make sense. We find two examples of unity here in this verse. First, we find unity among the great mystery of the Trinity. Throughout the Bible, Scripture teaches there is one God, and yet God is also three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit are the one God of the Bible in perfect unity, and they have enjoyed this relationship since before creation. Jesus speaks of this very relationship in verse 24 when he prays, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, the second example is this, that this Trinity, however difficult to understand, also wants to know us and to be known by us. The love shared within the Trinity is also offered to us. In the garden before the fall, Adam and Eve walked with God in perfect unity. 
And ever since the fall, God's great rescue plan has been to reunite us once again. And this is the invitation that Jesus offers when he says in John 15, abide in me. Now that's the easier part. But Jesus also desires that we would be one with fellow followers of Christ. And that means other people. And depending on how you feel about other people, that determines how big of a problem this might be for you. As I said before, in the garden, before the fall, Adam and Eve walked with God in perfect unity. But they too, the two of them, also walked in unity with each other. Genesis 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve enjoyed the perfect marriage, an intimate, loving relationship. They were one. Then, when Adam and Eve sinned, not only were they alienated from God, they were also alienated from each other. Genesis 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Genesis 3, verse 16, when God is talking to Eve, he says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Their marriage relationship, once a perfect picture of their relationship with God, will now be strained and marred by conflict. In the same way, all of our relationships have been seemingly irreparably damaged by sin. The rest of history, from Genesis 3 until now, is replete with serialized stories of human conflict. Don't we experience that today? Over and over again, we are uniquely creative in all of the ways that we can be unkind. But thankfully, Jesus is not just interested in reconciling himself with you individually. Now, contrary to popular belief, your relationship with God is not meant to be personal. Have you heard that before? That you can have a personal relationship with God? Now, of course, God does invite us into a relationship that is personal, meaning we can know him directly and he will know us. But the problem is we often mistake personal to mean private. Your relationship with God is not meant to be private. The problem is when your relationship is personal, you become a mere consumer, more concerned about what you get out of church instead of how you can serve the church. No, Jesus is also interested in reconciling us all of his creation. Our relationship with God is lived in community with other followers of Christ. We are not given the option to love God, but not his church. Now listen to how the church is described in the Bible. In Ephesians 5, we read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, 
The church is Christ's bride. You see, your marriage, that's the metaphor. Christ's relationship to the church is the thing to which it points. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The church is Christ's body. You are uniquely created with talents and abilities, and you have been sanctified. You have been set apart to use those gifts for the health and growth of the body. Jesus loves his church, and we should as well. That answers the question why, but how are we to be one? Bonhoeffer writes, without Christ, we should not know God. We could not call upon him nor come to him. But without Christ, we also would not know our brother, nor could we come to him. The way is blocked by our own ego. Christ opened up the way to God and to our brother. Now Christians can live with one another in peace. They can love and serve one another. They can become one. But they can continue to do so only by way of Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ are we one. Only through him are we bound together. To eternity he remains the one mediator. Jesus Christ is our one mediator. Now, thankfully, Jesus has spent the last however many hours teaching his disciples how to live together. Everything Jesus has been teaching the disciples in the upper room during what we call his farewell discourse, it points them to their purpose and life out in the world. And it's the same for us. If we look back to the beginning of Jesus' discourse in John chapter 13, we first see an example of exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, the Son of God, bends down low on a dusty floor to wash the feet of very dirty and undeserving men. He becomes a servant and then calls his disciples to become the same. So we serve one another. Jesus also gives them a new commandment. He says, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He promises to send us a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
And the Holy Spirit will help them to abide in Christ, to become more like Christ, and to do the things that Christ did. So when we abide in Christ like a branch on the vine, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we become more like Christ by abiding in Him, and we love others as Christ loved. Now all this is good news. Despite all of our differences and all of our talents and interests and personalities that make us all individually unique, we share the only important thing in common, the love of Christ. We should find great joy and encouragement in this unity that we share within the church. So what is the purpose of our unity for those who follow Christ? Part three, that the world may know. We as believers are all aimed at the same target, the glory of God. Now, I gave a biblical definition of the glory of God in another sermon, and it is this. God is infinitely just and yet infinitely loving, meaning he as a holy God punishes sin, but also as a loving God provides the atonement necessary for our sin. Therefore, the glory of God is most vivid and it is most clear when the body of Christ is pointing others to the work of God. It is the job of the church to display the glory of God, to go into all the world making disciples of those for whom Jesus prayed. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The world sees God through the examples of his followers. John 13, verse 35 says, By this all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our reconciliation to one another, our demonstration of love for one another, is a very real and tangible display of God's reconciliation to us. We love because he first loved us. It is the love of Christ lived out among the church that has grown the body of Christ from the early church in the book of Acts until now. So how do we put this text into practice? Now here at the Church of the Valley, we have a set of weekly rhythms that aid us in being the church to one another. I'll address each briefly, but Greg or someone at the Connect table in the lobby would love to talk more about these with you if you have questions. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list of activities in the Christian life, nor do I explain each rhythm in depth, but it should give you a good summary. Sunday gatherings. We gather each week on Sundays for corporate worship and the preaching of God's Word. Sunday mornings are an opportunity for us to, what I like to call, rehearse God's promises together. You are singing as much to your own soul as to the souls of the believers standing next to you. We are not always prepared to worship depending on what might have happened during the previous week or even moments in the car leading up to our gathering together. 
But when it is difficult to remember God's promises ourselves, we have someone standing next to us who can. So sing loud if you can, and listen well if you can't. The same is true when we preach the gospel to one another. Over and over again, the message remains the same. God loves you, and he sent his son to die for you, that your sins would be forgiven. We would all need this on repeat. Community groups. We also gather in community groups that meet weekly in homes throughout the valley. Community groups are a place where we care for one another. If you don't have people, these are your people. If you do have people, these are some more people. This community is what Bonhoeffer calls the fellowship of the table. It's around this table that we meet each week to express gratitude and celebrate. We eat together. We get to know one another. We enjoy each other's company. It is also around the table that we recognize our obligation to one another. We watch each other's kids. We help pay for last month's rent. We sit with someone in their hospital room. The early church in Acts was generous and devoted to one another, and we should be as well. Prayer ministry. We follow the model of Jesus as he intercedes on our behalf, like in our text this morning. We are called as the church to lift one another up in prayer. The early church in Acts devoted themselves to prayer, and God answered them, adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. James says we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we would be healed. Bonhoeffer writes, the body of Christ is praying, and as an individual, one acknowledges that his prayer is only a minute fragment of the whole prayer of the church. He learns to pray the prayer of the body of Christ, and that lifts him above his personal concerns and allows him to pray selflessly. Either corporately in our Wednesday morning prayer sessions or throughout the week in your own time, we should be a praying church. And finally, church membership. Briefly, church membership is an important part of church life in that it represents and offers accountability for a commitment to one another. There is much more to be discussed concerning the significance of church membership, which our pastors would love to do, but the crucial point is this. When we commit ourselves to be a part of the body of Christ, we become active members, not merely consumers. We serve one another. We perform specific roles in the same way that each specific part of the physical body has a function that benefits the whole. Now, even as we talk about unity within the church, I would add one caution. The church is made up of sinners, however much forgiven. Bonhoeffer cautions us against this ideal community, which he refers to as a wish dream, and writes, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? 
Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Yes, the church can be a messy place. And yes, the church body can be made up of proud and self-serving Christians. And yet the body of Christ is where we experience the love of Christ. We should not give up on the church. When we sin and when we fall, we have the body of Christ ready and able to restore us with grace and truth through the repentance. We all have the incredible opportunity to both extend and receive the grace and truth of God to one another. Christ is building his church for his glory that all would know as he prayed that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As we close, I'd like to reflect on God's blueprint for the church. What can we hope for? Charles Spurgeon described the construction of Christ's church in this way. He writes, Why, before my astonished gaze this morning, there seems to me to rise up as from a great sea of confusion, a wondrous building. I see the first stone sunk into the depths of that sea dyed with blood. And I see the top of it just emerging above lofty waves of strife and confusion. And now I see other stones built on that. All of them died with blood. The first apostles, all of them martyrs. I see stone rising upon stone as age succeeds age. At first, nearly all the foundations are laid in the fair vermilion of martyrdom. But the structure rises. The stones are very different. They come from Asia, Africa, America, Europe. They are taken from amongst princes and from among peasants. These stones are very diverse. Perhaps while they were here, they scarcely recognized that they belonged to the same building. But there they are. And for 1,860 years, now 2,024, That building goes on and on and on building, every stone being made ready. We know not how many more years that masterly edifice will take, but at the last, despite all the frowns of hell and all the power of devils, that edifice will be completed, not a single stone being lost, not one elect child of God being absent, and not one of those stones having suffered any injury nor been put out of its place. And the whole so fair, so matchless, such a display of power and wisdom and love, that even the hateful ones whose hearts are hard as adamant against the Most High will be compelled to say, God must have sent Christ. They cannot restrain that confession when all the church shall be one, as the Father is one with Christ. And once again, as beautifully as Spurgeon may describe the church and its strange and magnificent construction, it is but a vague shadow of the real thing. We read in Revelation 7, After this I looked, and behold, 
a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. John offers us a glimpse into Jesus' answered prayer. A united church, worshiping together with one voice. God gives John this vision, not of what could be, but of what will be. This is the point in eternity in which all history has been marching toward. This is the great rescue plan. And Jesus has been there the entire time, interceding on our behalf, praying for us as we go, that we would be one. As we enter into a time of response, I would like to offer two invitations this morning. For those who follow Jesus, you have been set apart to be one with the church that the world may know the love of God. This is your intended purpose, that you would be an active member of the body of Christ. We should be encouraged that Jesus prays for us and invites us to be a part of his work together. I really hope that this passage we've read this morning excites you to commit to the church, to love and to serve the church in all of the great and awesome ways that God has prepared you for. And for those who have not yet followed Christ, Jesus invites you to become a part of this body. Accept his invitation this morning and come follow him. Our prayer team and our pastors will be available to pray with you this morning as we continue in worship. I invite you to respond. Please pray with me now. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. We ask that your glory would be made clear in our hearts. That you are infinitely just and infinitely loving. Thank you for your son interceding on our behalf. And thank you for your church. I pray for the church this morning that we would be one in order that all might see your glory. We pray that this valley would be saturated with the good news of Jesus Christ. Please intercede on our behalf. Help us to love one another, to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens. And let it all be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.